um, we're starting off a brand new message series, and um, I have a couple of series I want to do this summer, and uh, this is uh, multiple choice is what we're going to do today and for the next few weeks. And then and in July, I'm actually working on a series of messages on end times. And I really want to talk about what, it, what that looks like and, 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 and kind of tackle those questions about end times. What does that mean when we're living in the last days? What does that, what does that mean to us? And uh, so we're, we're looking forward to that later in the summer. And, uh, but today, we're starting off a brand new series, Multiple Choice. And uh, how many of you, you know, remember taking a final exam, you know, when you were in high school, you know, in college? You know, I remember those days. And in fact, we have some of our students, they're, they're about to take finals, you know, they're coming up here in the last couple of weeks of school. And, um, and they're, they're ready to, to, to finish off and get ready for the summer. But before the summer, it's the rites of passage, it's the finals, right? And so that's happening for a lot of our, our, our high schoolers, middle schoolers, and even college kids. And they probably already finished in the past couple of weeks. But you know, multiple choice. I remember, um, you know, I, I love multiple choice. You know, they always seem to be a little easier. You just have to figure out what the best of the four answers you know, and make sure you pick that one. And, uh, and I usually do very well. I remember one class I took in, in my seminary. Uh, the, the class was on Hebrew history, you know, and you're like, man, that sounds really deep. Well, it's all Old Testament stuff, okay? It's Old Testament Bible stories, and, and it was actually really fascinating. And, um, and I thought, you know, I'm gonna ace this, uh, I'm gonna ace this multiple choice. And they, told, they told us the final exam multiple choice. And I've got an A in the class. I feel like this is good. In fact, this is my senior year. This is coming down to the final for me in, in my, my seminary. And, and so um, I, I, I kind of went in with, a, with a barely studying. I just thought, you know what, this is one of my final, last finals. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be done. But a Bible story from the Old Testament, I feel like I've got this. And it's multiple choice. It should be easy. And I remember just sitting down and I look at this, the test, and this was the hardest test in the multiple choice I've ever taken. I mean, I'm looking at this, and then, you, know, uh, you know Pharaoh in the Bible, but in this test, it's asking for the actual name of Pharaoh. And I'm like, I don't know the actual name of Pharaoh. I just knew it was Moses and Pharaoh, you know? But there, you know, there are many Pharaohs. You know, they're talking about all these different Pharaohs and all these different names, and I'm like, oh man. And I knew, looking at the test, that I was in bad shape. I mean, it got so bad, I got about halfway through, I said, I, I kind of just gave up. You know, I, I just started marking whatever. I mean, I just, I have no clue. I'm just kind of marking. You know, at one point, I think I, you know, you have the four choices, and, the, and I take my number two pencil, not number one, not number three, but number two, and I take my number two pencil, and, um, and I just started making a smiley face <laughs> in the multiple choices. I mean, I was just like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. It, it's bad. You know, and, and I get to the final grade, you know, and I got like a 50%. It was bad, okay? And it dropped my grade from an A to a C minor. I mean, it was a heavy final. And I was like, man, I should have studied for that one. I should have studied. I, didn't, I should have not relied on my Bible story upbringing in Sunday school. And, uh, and so today we're talking about multiple choice. We're all faced with decisions every day. Big decisions, small decisions, you know, and a lot of us, when we look at our decision, 
a lot of us can look back in our past and we say, man, I made some great decisions. But then we can also look at some of our decisions that we've made in the past and we could, be, we could say, man, I made some really bad, what was I thinking, dumb, stupid decisions. How many of you can relate? We've all made them. We've all made those type of decisions. We've leased cars that we should not have leased. We've bought houses that we should not have bought. We, we've dated people that we should not have dated. We've gone places that we should not have traveled. Now, speaking of dumb decisions, Karen and I, when we first got married, we were, after we got married, and, and, and um, on our honeymoon, um, I, had, I had bought a vacation package that required a couple of presentations. Now, if you go through the presentation, they give you free ticket to go to Disney World. And I thought, hey, you know, and they told us the presentation should be no more than an hour. Now, we have no idea what the presentation's about. We were kind of naive. We weren't well, you know, versed on what was going to take place here. But we go down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we're down there. And, and then part of our trip it was to go um, to this little oasis in the middle of a swamp called the Everglades. And this little oasis got some nice golf courses, and, and it had some nice, you know, hotels and some resort, and, and that's where the presentation was to be had. And so we go through the presentation, and we just kind of go through the motion so we can get our free ticket. But what, took, what was supposed to be one hour turned into about five hours. And then we debated this morning because I said it was on Christmas Eve, but she said it was not on Christmas Eve, but nevertheless, it was during the Christmas holiday, you know, on our honeymoon, and we're wasting five hours with this guy who got us in the car driving around this little oasis surrounded by, did I mention a swamp? It's a swamp, okay? And he convinced us that this golf course is a top golf course that all the PGA players like to play on. This is a PGA golf course. I'm thinking I've never seen a tournament on TV on a PGA tournament tour you know, from this Everglade uh, golf course, you know? But I'm, I'm believing this guy, you know? He said, oh, you see that house right there? That's where Dan Marino played, you know? He played football, you know, for the Miami, you know, Miami football team. So he's like, this is where, this is where it's happening. And, um, and I'm like, okay, and, and, and he kind of, you know, just making a, a mind blown. And then he said, okay, now you should buy a timeshare. And that's what this whole thing came down to, a timeshare. And so Karen and I, like, oh, we're poor, you know. We're, we're just newlywed, number one. And number two, I'm in the ministry. So, you know, we have two things going against us here in order for us to even consider a timeshare. And so we, we, we you know, that first guy, you know, was real nice. I said, listen, this is not going to work for us. Now, thank you for taking us around. And, um, and that was the first hour. The second hour, we had to go through a gauntlet of other salesmen. And see, I have learned at the end of this thing, they weren't going to take no for an answer. All right, they convinced us that we could take a timeshare and only be allowed to go once every five years, but we can give it away if we don't want to. And I'm thinking, okay, fine, whatever we got to do to get out of here. And so we made a mistake, a bad decision, just so that we can get free from these leeches, <laughs> you know, and, and, and get out of there. And, uh, and so before we're walking away, on our honeymoon, we have a timeshare. <laughs> yeah, in the middle of a swamp. 
Okay, so anybody, if anybody's interested, you know, just talk to me after the service. I mean, listen, listen it has a PGA golf course. Nice. All right. And so now let me be, let me just be honest. We come home, and you know you have buyer's remorse, you know. And so I started looking at the contract, and I had like seven days to cancel the thing. And we were on day number seven. I pick up the phone, and, and I talked to a salesman. Of course, it was going to go through another gauntlet, but I was determined, no, was the final answer. Well, you're going to lose $200. I said, that would be the best $200 I lose. <laughs> so we're out of it, okay? So in case you were hopeful, it's over. Uh, <laughs> listen, we have all made some really bad decisions, haven't we? We made dumb, dumb decisions. Well, I want to talk about this morning and talk about in this series how to make great decisions. Let's make strategic decisions. You know, our God is a great decision maker, and he really does want us, all of us to become great decision makers. He really desires for you to do that. And many times, the decisions that you're making, yeah, many of them are minor decisions. You know, you made decisions this morning when you woke up, you know, what clothes to put on. You know, you made, you've already made your mind up, or maybe you will at some point, what you're going to have for lunch today. You made decisions already. You know, and, and there's some decisions you make, and you probably make them throughout the week, not every day, but throughout the week, you make some really big decisions. Some decisions are bigger than others, but you make some pretty good, big decisions. Some of you might be making a big decision about vacation planning this year. You might be making a big decision about, about moving or, or buying or selling. You, you might be making a decision on your, on your stock market. Do I, do I buy now, sell, you know, buy low and sell high later, or do I need to get out while I can? I mean, you're making, those are pretty good size decisions. In fact, um, when I think about decisions, some of the biggest decisions you make, there's actually three of them. Three of the biggest decisions that we we'll all make is this. Number one, who's your master? I mean, that's a big decision. Who is your master of your life? And the second decision, um, I think most of us will agree, is who's going to be your spouse, your mate for life. That's a big decision, big decision. And another decision that you, that you made or you're thinking about making is your career. That's a big, major decision. And so we're talking about big decisions today. And uh, what do I do when, I, when I'm faced with a big decision? What do I process? How do I process a decision? And so today, in our first message on multiple choice and decision making, I want us to sit at the feet of the greatest decision maker of all time, the GOAT, okay? The greatest of all time is Jesus Christ. We're going to learn that he's never made a bad call. We're going to learn that Jesus never overreacted. We're going to learn that Jesus never said something that he regretted. We're going to learn that he never got carried away by his feelings. We're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to learn from Jesus. He was tempted. We'll see that he was tested and tried. He went through things and, and processes and, and decisions just like you and I go through. And so we're going to learn from Jesus today and we're going to check out his process. And we're going to see how he made godly decisions. And so I'm going to talk about three questions 
that we need to filter every major decision in our lives. Three questions. If you're taking notes, here's the first question. The first question is the standard question. In other words, what does God's word say? Another way to, to, to say it is when we're thinking about a big decision, we should ask ourselves, uh, does this go against the word of God? So important. That's the standard question. Does this, does this decision go against the scripture? In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, we can learn from Jesus during the crunch time of his life when he was tested. After he was baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit of God led him to a wilderness for 40 days. And the wilderness is a dry desert place. It's a very hostile place. Um, it, it's a tough place, and, and, and it's tough I mean, it, for anybody to just stay there. If you think about camping, for a weekend, this is not a place you want to go camping for a weekend. And so this was tough. And the Bible said that, that Jesus, he camped out there for 40 days and 40 nights. And after he fasted, after the end of 40 days, the Bible said that he was emotionally, physically, and spiritually drained. And that's when the evil one showed up. And he comes along and he gave Jesus Three tests. He formulated the test, to, you know, so that he can mess Jesus up. Before he can make Jesus, so that he can make Jesus make a bad decision. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted Jesus to settle for second best in his decision. And so let's we see what happens. He's taking, he takes Jesus, and, and and he said, Jesus, I know you haven't, I know you haven't eaten for forty days. I know you're starving. I know you're hungry. You see these rocks? Man, Jesus, these rocks, they look like bread sold on the streets of Jerusalem. And Jesus, I know, hey, listen, bread. I mean, if you're really hungry, bread's the way to go. I mean, who doesn't like good carbs? And Jesus, I mean, just, uh, just, just look at these rocks. Just imagine these rocks. That you could turn these rocks into nice, warm, moist, with some butter on top of it. Mmm. Jesus, I mean, come on. I know you want it, man. I know you want it. Listen, you're God. You can do anything. All you have to do is snap your finger. Jesus had a decision to make in this moment. He had a decision, and notice how he responded to Satan. Look at verse number four, Matthew chapter four. Jesus answered, it is written. He said, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Satan, he takes Jesus for a second test. He takes him to the top of the temple mount. He tells Jesus, listen, Jesus, again, you're God, and you can just throw yourself off the roof of your temple. And I know that the angels will just show up and catch you from from dying before you hit the, the concrete. And if you do that, people will be amazed. People will be shocked and say, oh, wow, this is awesome. And people will just start following you right away. You have all these people just amazed by your power. And Jesus had a decision to make. 
He said in verse number seven, he answered to him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now Satan turns up the heat. I mean, he cranks up the heat on the third test. He said, Jesus, listen, if you bow down and worship me, everything that you see can be yours. And Jesus, decision-making time, he responded in verse number 10. He said, get away from me, Satan, for it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus went three for three. He took down Satan every time, and every time he said, is it written? It is written. What's going on? How did Christ make those decisions? Well, he asked himself the question, does it go against the word of God? Is it written? If it's in the book, if it's in my Father's word, if it's in the Bible, then I've got the green light and I'll do it. If it's not in the Bible, then I have a red light and I won't do it. And many of you right now, you're facing some big, serious, important decisions. Maybe you're facing a relationship decision. Maybe you're making a, a financial decision. Maybe you're making a decision to move or not to move, or not to move. A decision to take the job or not. Maybe you're making a big decision about college. Maybe we got some of our, our, our high school graduates are making decisions about where they're going to go to college next year. Whatever that decision is, we need to ask the question, does it go against the word of God? What does God's word have to say about it? It's the same question that Jesus asked himself. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to decision-making, you have to set your standard. Okay, this is the standard question. We've got to set our standard on the word of God. See, the word of God's our authority. The word of God is our authority. Our authority is not man-made. Our authority is the Bible. And when we have a question, we should ask every time. When we have faced with a decision, does it go against the word of God? What does the Bible say? And if it is, we do it. If it goes against the scripture, we don't do it. That simple. And unfortunately, most people don't have a standard. We live in a world that many people don't have a standard. They don't have a right or a wrong. Uh, most people don't have the scripture or God as the source of truth. So what happens when we don't rely on God's word as our standard? Well, there's a term for this. It's the term relativism. Relativism. In fact, if you take a note, relativism, it means no absolutes. No absolutes. Imagine, if you will, imagine that you're in school and a professor hands out a multiple choice test to you. And he said, listen, there's a series of questions here and, 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 and just circle the answer that you feel right. There's no right or wrong, by the way. You circle whatever, you circle whatever answer you like, whatever makes sense to you. You should kind of go with your feeling, kind of go with your gut. Don't worry about it. You're all going to make a hundred on this. And you would say, man, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Of course, there's got to be a right or wrong answer. That's a test. But when we don't go God's way, when we don't have him as our absolute, then everything becomes relatives. There's no right. There's no wrong. And here's what 
finally about relativists. Relativists are absolute about having no absolutes. Let me say that again. They're absolute about having no absolutes. And the reason so many people make dumb, what was I thinking decision is because oftentimes they look within themselves. And they don't look to God as the source. Let me get a little bit deeper here. What do we say when we look to ourselves, when we trust ourselves? We say stuff like this, if you're taking notes. We say stuff like, you know, go with your heart. Just go with your heart. No, when, when you're facing a big decision, no, just go with your gut, gut feelings. Go with your heart. I'll do it. But should you? You know, the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, the heart is deceitful and above all things. It's beyond cure. Who can understand the heart? We can't trust the heart. We can't. But the idea of going with your heart, that's saying, hey, don't go with the word of God. Look inward. Here's something else that uh, uh, if we're looking inward, if we're looking to ourselves, if we trust ourselves, we might hear a phrase like this, let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience be your guide. By the way, your conscience is a sliding scale. What, what convicts you may not convict me. You know, conscience. Your conscience. Now, let me just say this. And we're going to see more in this series. We're going to find out that your conscience is important in decision-making when it's connected to the, to the source of God, when it's connected to the Word of God. We're going to talk more about that. But if you're conscious, if you're not in the Word of God, then your conscience can be all over the map. And so don't just let your conscience be your guide unless it's connected to the Word of God. Here's another, here's another thing that we hear from time to time, and if, if, when we start trusting ourselves, when we start listening to ourselves, it's this idea of, if it feels right, do it. If it feels right, just do it. And again, our feelings, our feelings, we cannot rely on our feelings. Our feelings are fickle. We cannot trust our feelings. And so when you face a decision, now ask yourself the question, does this go against the word of God? Not my feelings, not my conscience, not my gut feelings, my heart, but does this go against the word of God? What does God's word have to say about this decision? We need to say, God, you're my standard. God, you're my true source. God, I know you have my best interest in my mind. You have my best interest in mind. That's the first question we've got to ask. We've got to ask the question, what does God's word say? Here's the second big question as we filter decision-making. We filter the decision-making through the heart question. The heart question. When they ask the question, what does love require 
of me. Another way to say it, does it, does it fulfill the law of love? Does this decision that I'm making fulfill the law of love? Now, again, we're looking at Jesus in John chapter 9, verse 1. He tells, you know, let me read the first verse. It's not on your screen, but let me, I'm going to elaborate. I'll tell the story. But in verse 1, Jesus went along and saw a man blind from birth. And, and what, what's happening is on a Sabbath. It's on a Sabbath day around the temple. Jesus and his disciples are walking around, and, and they see the blind man. While they're walking around, they see the blind man. There's also another group of, group of people there, and they're the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, uh, if you don't know who they are, they're, they're a condescending, you know, they're religious people. They're legalistic religious people. They had man-made rules that they've created on, you know, on, on top of the Old Testament laws. They've created so many different laws, so many different rules. They were all about religion. And, and, and the reality is Jesus was against religion. That, that Jesus was absolutely against religion. Jesus was all about relationship, not about the rules. And so Pharisees, they're, they're religious on steroids. I mean, they took religion to a whole nother level. And so they made up all these laws and, and had hundreds of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. For example, they had, they had laws like how many steps a person could walk. How many steps a man or a woman could walk on the Sabbath. And so if you're, you know, if you're walking halfway through your house and you're counting your steps and you meet, you meet your quota, then you're stuck halfway home. You know, you're hoping maybe someone picks you up, but then they'll be breaking the law because they pick you up. And so you're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, unless you kind of tiptoed home, hopefully that a Pharisee, the religious, you know, the religious cops want to catch you. I mean, it, it was crazy. They had rules about how long your garment was supposed to be. And if it was too long or too short, then you missed the mark. And so these guys were nuts. They had all these rules. And so here's Jesus. He sees a blind man. And he has a decision to make. Does he... Does he obey the man-made law of the Pharisees or does he obey a higher law, a supernatural, one-of-a-kind law, the law of love that comes down from the Father? So what does Jesus do? He asked the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me to do in this moment? That, that this decision that I'm making, does it fulfill the law of love? And so he healed the blind man. The Pharisees, of course, they go crazy. They want to hang him. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. They can't believe it. He, he broke the law. But Jesus made a choice. He went with compassion. The compassionate choice and healed the blind man, let me ask you this. When you make a decision, you need to ask, does it fulfill the law of love? What, what does love, what does love require of me? You know, one day Jesus would ask the question about the greatest commandment. And Jesus responded to the question in verse, 
Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said, love, we love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he said in verse 39, he said, and second, it's like this, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the heart question it's a motive question. And when I make a decision, we need to ask the question, we need to do a motive heart check. What, what does love require of me? And when the law of love begins to operate in your life, supernatural things begin to happen. We begin to put other needs above ourselves. So when you're making your decision, is it out of love? Does it fulfill the law of love to your spouse? Does it fulfill the law of love to your kids, your co-workers, to your friends, to your enemies? By the way, you know, when you do the law of love, sometimes you get a good return out of it. They may love you back. They may ask the same question, what does love require of them too? But many times, that's not always the case. You'll still love them. And you may not get love back, but we're still called to fulfill the law of love, even when it doesn't reciprocate. I did a wedding yesterday and, and, and the passage, by the way, the first wedding here at Lake Point that I did, I mean, in three years, about time, you know, but three years, you know, did a wedding, beautiful wedding, and, um, and uh, I, I used the passage uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a love chapter. And, uh, but let me just say this. When Paul, inspired by, the, by, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he didn't write this passive scripture with weddings in his mind. He wrote this for all of us on a regular basis. He's teaching us in the passage, what does love require of me? What does love require of you? Look at, look at here, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to break this down for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. It starts off, love is patient. What does love require? Love requires patience. Patience. It's not pushy. Love requires that I move at your pace rather than you requiring to move at my pace. It says here, love is kind. Love, it requires kindness. Kindness is love's response to weakness. Let me explain. Kindness is the choice to loan others our strength rather than reminding them of their weaknesses. It's doing for others what they cannot do in that moment for themselves. Love is kind. It, it does not envy. Love does not boast. 
It's not proud. What does love require of me? Well, love requires us to keep envy and pride from interfering with our ability to celebrate the success of others. Love requires us to allow others to shine. It isn't threatened by the success of others. We don't get envious. That's what love requires. Uh, verse number five. It says, love does not dishonor others. See, love requires us to show honor. Honor is a gift. Honor is something that we give. Even if they don't earn it, we still honor. Love requires us to show honor to others. Love doesn't create, it doesn't create regret. It's not self-seeking. See, love requires selflessness. That's what love requires of you. Selflessness. It's not self-seeking, it's not selfish. It puts the interests and needs of others first. It's not easily angered. Love, love requires us to address our anger privately rather than allowing it to spill out on the people around us. Love requires us to own it and to go work on it. It's not easily stirred up. Love is not easily provoked. It, you know, it, it's, not, it's not easily angered. Instead, you know what love does? Love absorbs. It takes a hit, and we don't hit back. That's what love requires. Man, this is convicting stuff, isn't it? It, it, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love requires us to forgive. Now, funny thing about relational record keepers, they rarely keep track of their own records. Always too busy looking at the fault of others, and not themselves. Forgiving and forgetting is your best foot forward every time. That's what love requires. To, to do otherwise is a power play. When someone holds your past over you, who's in the elevator position? Well, you are. See, love is not about powering up. Love is about stepping down. Verse number six. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, love requires us to see and believe the best while choosing to downplay the rest. Verse number seven, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. Paul says, love always protects. Love requires us to do everything in our power to protect or guard the relationship. Love doesn't smuggle harmful things into a relationship. It does the opposite. Love keeps harmful things out. That's quite a list, isn't it? What does love require of you? It may require some of you to make a decision, to pick up the phone, rebuild a bridge, maybe a bridge that you burn with your sarcasm. You say, but God, I was right. You were right. 
Maybe you were right. But being right isn't what love requires of you. Maybe some of you, you need to write a letter. We write an email. Invite someone to meet over coffee. I don't know what it is. Some of you have decisions to make. It's a heart question. It's a motive question. Does it fulfill the law of love? What does love require of me? To love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. Here's the third question. I'm running out of time here. The third major question that we need to ask when we're filtering our decision is the mission question. Am I pursuing my calling? Am I pursuing my calling? In other words, another question I have to ask. Does it go against God's purpose for my life? The decision I'm making, does it go against God's purpose? Does it go against my calling that God has created me to be? We go back to Jesus, right? Jesus was the decision maker. You know, Satan tried to get him to try to get him off purpose. Satan was trying to get him off purpose. He was trying, even on the cross, he was tempted. All hell was telling Jesus, get down from the cross. Say, come on down, save yourself. And listen, Jesus could have. Jesus could have called the angels and could have saved him. But Jesus had a calling and a mission. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he's, it's what it's missing. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. Who's the lost? Well, that's you and me. His mission was us. His mission was you. And he hung on that cross. Because that was the decision he needed to make. That was his mission. A question for you is your mission. And as you process decisions, when I ask, does this go against God's purpose in my life? Three big questions. Three major questions as we discern our decision making, as we make proper, godly decisions. We need to ask the standard question. What does God's word have to say about it? When you ask the heart question, the motive question, does this fulfill the law of love? What does, what does love require of me? And that third question, the mission question, does this distract me from God's calling in my life? If I make this decision, does this pull away from the mission? Three big questions. Listen, God wants you to make great decisions, and you can with the power of God in you. If we start with these three questions, we process major decisions in our lives, those three questions, moving forward, you can see great things that God has for your life. Next week, we're going to continue to talk about decision-making. What about the small decisions? What about the decisions that don't quite you know, we don't get quite an answer in these first three questions. How do I, how do I process those decisions that doesn't quite fit these three things? We're going to tackle that next week. Invite someone. Invite someone to be your guest. Invite them here next Sunday morning. And if you're watching online, we hope to see you back here as well. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to help us today. Help us to make 
great decision. God, help us to ask the standard question. Help us to be absolute on the authority of your word. Help us to ask the hard question. And God, God, help us to ask the question, what does love require of me? And then God, the mission question. Does it fulfill or does it go against the mission, the purpose, the calling that God has in my life? And so God, help us here today. We thank you that Jesus never made a mistake. And we can follow after him and learn from him. In Jesus' name, amen.